Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Outrageous Joy. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. In 1987, Hollywood released a riveting Oliver Stone drama called Wall Street. The film tells the story of an up-and-coming stockbroker played by Charlie Sheen who is willing to do whatever it takes to achieve financial and vocational success. Determined to reach his goals at all costs, Sheen's character persuades the unethical corporate raider Gordon Gecko to mentor him. This gecko guy is played, of course, by Michael Douglas. Gecko is the archetype of 1980s overindulgent American dreams. Uh, he, he He has more money than he knows what to do with, and he's willing to get it no matter the cost. In the most memorable scene of the movie, the cutthroat gecko delivers what some rank as one of the best movie monologues of all time. While attending a shareholder meeting for Teldar Paper, a company which Gecko plans on taking over, he gives a speech intended to justify his methods and the unrestrained selfishness that defined the era. Uh, Gecko declares this, I am not a destroyer of companies. I am a liberator of them. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. In the decades since the film's release, financial experts have debated whether or not Gordon Gecko's economic strategy is good or bad for our nation. But although there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to achieve great things, God's word does say that greed is sinful because it's not good for his church. Generosity, on the other hand, is good for the Lord's church. And that is what the Apostle Paul was trying to convey at the end of his letter to the Philippians. We're concluding our series in Philippians called Outrageous Joy today. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Philippians chapter 4 and take out the sermon notes in your worship folder. And if you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand. And one of our ushers can bring one to you. We have plenty of copies that we can, we can loan, loan to you. 
Philippians chapter 4. Our theme verse for this series that captures what Paul has been trying to say over course these four chapters is Philippians 4.4. Let's say it out loud together. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Now, you may remember me mentioning earlier in this series that uh, Philippians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul while he was under house arrest in Rome, somewhere around 61 to 62 AD, and he was put there because he had been preaching the gospel. According to Acts chapter 16, Paul had helped start the church in Philippi about 11 to 12 years earlier. In addition to being an instructional letter, Philippians is also a very warm thank you letter that he wanted to send to this dear church for financial support they had sent him while he was planting other churches abroad. As the apostle nears the end of his letter here in chapter 4, he re-emphasizes his gratitude for their generosity and sprinkles in some teaching on biblical stewardship. Thus, our our big idea for today, the sermon in a sentence, is this. The key of generosity unlocks the handcuffs of greed. The key of generosity unlocks the handcuffs of greed. The dictionary defines greed as the excessive desire for food, possessions, or wealth. To be greedy is to to want more than is necessary or fair. Greed is like a pair of handcuffs because it it does the opposite of what the world tells us it would do. The, the, The world tries to tell us that greed will satisfy us, but it set us free from longings and wants. But Proverbs 11.24 says, The one who withholds what he should give only suffers want. It means they will never be satisfied and always be in bondage to wanting more. Now, to be generous, on the other hand, is to give or share more than is expected or usual. Now, let me just say before I go any further... Overall, the generosity of our small church continues to amaze me, and it's one of our greatest strengths. Myself and my family and our leaders are extremely thankful for that strength. Uh, Time and time again, our church has demonstrated the willingness to step up and meet needs, and that is totally awesome, as we used to say in the 80s. However, in every church, there's always some who have yet to apply God's word to their finances, and there are always some that need to be reminded why they are giving in the first place. And so let's look at Paul's closing together, starting in chapter 4, verse 10. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, 
and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, there are three truths about generosity that Paul wants to tell us this morning. The first one on your outline is this, the prerequisite for generous giving is financial contentment. The prerequisite for generous giving is financial contentment. There are two observations in this first, well, in the first verse and a half, actually, of this passage that we must not miss. Uh, He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. First, by saying that he rejoiced in the Lord, Paul is reemphasizing the fact that his joy was not based on his circumstances changing when the Philippians came through with a financial blessing for him. So in other words, he's saying, regardless of whether you would have met this great need that I had in my ministry, I still would have been joyful. He's saying he rejoiced in the Lord regardless. Next, he then writes, and notice this in verse 11, not that. He repeats it in verse 17, not that. I am speaking of being in need. So the second observation I want to make sure we, we don't miss is this strong negative, not that. It's how it's, that's how it's worded in the ESV. This is the apostle's way of saying, my relationship with you, Philippians, is not contingent on whether you support me or not. And I, I don't want you to think when I say thank you that I'm trying to somehow get you to give to me again. That's why he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need again. Like, I'm I'm not writing this letter to you because I want you to send me more money. You know, like someone who gives you an over-the-top, flattering thank you for something you did or gave them. Like, oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hey, any other time you feel like giving, I'll take whatever you want. You're so wonderful. Oh, you are, I mean, there's like Jesus, and then there's you. Sometimes you are, you know, that over-the-top thank you that makes you feel uncomfortable and makes you go, yeah, I don't know if I want to give to them again or do something for them again. Because it seems like they want me to do it over and over again, and I'm going to feel bad if I don't. It's just really awkward. So not that, interestingly, is a common expression that Paul uses in his letters to prevent his readers from misunderstanding him. He uses these two words in 2 Corinthians and 2 Thessalonians a few more times. It's in essence him trying to say, hey, thank you, but but don't don't think I'm trying to ask you for more. Okay, okay, just saying thanks for the first gift you gave. That's that's all I'm saying. Sort of like if you were to say, wow, you look really nice today. I'm not saying you don't look nice in the other day. But, oh, you look really nice today. Oh, you seem to be in a good mood today. I'm not, I don't mean that you're like in bad moods and irritable the rest of the days that I see you. He's trying to kind of fence it there. So look at verse 11 again. He said, I've learned in whatever situation that I'm in to be content. Now, I know this is 
is convicting for me as it is you, and so let's just wade into this together, and we'll, we'll help each other get through it. The word in the original text that Paul uses here for content, it's a really interesting word. It means self-sufficient, satisfied with one's lot, or independent of external circumstances. Now, I'm going to do what Paul did. Not that. i gotta, I got to fence this. Self-sufficient does not mean, it does not mean the same thing that it means in our 21st century first world culture. The, the, the Greek word here for content, when it, when it means self-sufficient, it, it, it doesn't mean to avoid depending on the Lord. It doesn't mean refusing to receive help or refusing to ask for help if you need it. Instead, this Greek word for content was used by Stoic philosophers in Paul's day to describe being emotionally detached from their circumstances just enough, just enough, so that the force of those circumstances would not affect their emotions. So it's not being indifferent but it's also not being so wrapped up in our circumstances with our emotions that, that we're like, you know, the, a roller coaster, up and down, up and down, up and down. So how did Paul define contentment in, in his situation, like when it comes to finances? Well, when he wrote Timothy in Ephesus, Paul defined it like this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world... And we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And I know some of you teenagers are probably thinking, is that, is that modern clothing or is it like hand-me-downs for my older siblings? Is this clothing from the goodwill? Because it kind of depends. Now, actually, I was reminded when I read this, uh, this, this, these two verses again last night, I was reminded of what the author and Pastor Tony Evan once said, you will never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer on its way to a graveside funeral. Because we brought nothing into the world and we'll take nothing out of it. Now, in his classic book called The Rare Jewel, of Christian contentment, it, and it is rare, but it's important and precious. The 17th century Puritan preacher Jeremiah Burroughs defines contentment as that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Okay, maybe you're like me when I read that. Okay, Reverend Burroughs. <laughs> that sounds real lofty and wordy and spiritual. <laughs> but how, that's easier said than done. That is easier said than done. And, and man, you know, 17th century is probably easier to be content than it is here in the 21st century. So, so how do we find this elusive thing called contentment, or as, as Burroughs calls it, the rare jewel? Well, it's almost as if Burroughs anticipated our question a few hundred years ago, because later on in the book he writes this. So this is the art of contentment. 
not to seek to add to our circumstances, but to subtract from our desires. But to subtract from our desires. Isn't this so the opposite of what the world tells us? I mean, the world tells us the secret to contentment is having more. More and more. But God's word tells us the secret to contentment is wanting less. So the apostle says he learned this secret as well. And in verse 12, if you look back at your Bibles, he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. This is, this is Paul's way of saying, hey, Philippians, I've had seasons where I was financially well off. I was rich. I was abounding. And I've had some seasons where I didn't know how I was going to eat. I was poor. I was in poverty. I, I, was, I was without funds. I've had both. And I've learned through those various seasons how to be content in the Lord. So then he says, verse 13, that popular verse, it's on social media, greeting cards, posters, t-shirts, bracelets. I can do all things through Christ or him who strengthens me. This popular verse is often misinterpreted to mean that Jesus will help us do whatever we set our mind to do. But that's not what it means. We, we have to remember that context is very important when interpreting Scripture. And in the context here, Paul is actually saying that regardless of whether he's poor or rich, the Lord will empower him to do whatever the Lord calls him to do. He'll have what he needs. Now, it could be argued that contentment is more difficult to achieve in a free market capitalistic country that depends heavily on consumers spending money. However, I think contentment is still possible if we can learn some of the tricks that advertisers use to get us to spend money, especially more money than we should. And there's nothing morally wrong, let me just say at the outset, with business owners making their product or service known to consumers so they can earn a living. Nothing wrong with that. But there is something wrong if we allow their advertisements to lock up all our kingdom resources that we have so we can't give anything to the Lord's work. And so here's what I call sort of five subtle ways advertisers create discontentment. Sometimes they do all five. Sometimes they only do two or three. And it's not necessarily in this order. And this is not in order of preference either. The first, letter A on your outline, is they want to turn your want into a need. Advertisers work really hard at turning wants that are optional into needs that are essential. And they do this by convincing us that everybody has one or everybody that is somebody has one. This is hilariously illustrated um, in, in the 1996 VeggieTales cartoon, The Toy That Saved Christmas. It's a popular one in our house. In this episode, 
of the popular Christian cartoon series, TV commercials were advertising a new toy that every child just had to have that Christmas. And each commercial ended with the catchphrase, Billy has more toys than you. So that became a line that was repeated throughout the episode. This then causes all children throughout Veggie Land to go home to their parents, or when their parents come home, and to say, I want a buzzsaw Louie for Christmas. Billy has more toys than me. And then when parents would respond, who's Billy? The kids would then say, I don't know, but he has more toys than me. And so it's this funny line that's repeated throughout the episode. But I was thinking there are adults that struggle with that too. So-and-so has more toys than me. Well, who's, who's that? I don't know, but he's got more. And I want what he has. Well, then you get what he has, and then, then you look for the next person who has more than you, and on and on. So they turn wants into needs. Here's letter B. They turn needs into rights. They want to do that next with their marketing. If they can turn the product or service into an entitlement by convincing you either explicitly or implicitly, that you deserve a break today. Or you work hard, so treat yourself. You will start to feel in your spirit, yeah, I do need one of those. And I deserve one of those too. Letter C. They then want to make that right urgent. Act now, because this is a limited time offer. In other words, you'll be stupid if you don't move now and pay for this. Only while supplies last. The sale ends tomorrow. By putting a deadline on the offer, advertisers bait our impulses by pressuring us to buy before we can think, because they don't want us thinking. They just want us reacting. They want us to believe a deal like the one they're offering will never happen again. At least not until next week. And then letter E, they, they, sorry, D, they, they make spending easy. They realize they need to remove all the obstacles that they can to get you to spend money impulsively. And regardless of whether it's within your means or not, they want to get you to spend money. And if it's living beyond your means and spending more than you have, that's fine. They don't care. They just want your money. So they may say things like financing, financing available for qualified buyers or 90 days same as cash. The goal is to remove any remaining objections our rational mind might have to making this purchase. And then letter E, they entertain you. Why? Because when our emotions are engaged, our discernment disengages. Also because we instinctively trust anyone who makes us feel good. So if the advertiser can get us to, to laugh, to cry, to love a character, to remember a jingle or a catchphrase that's funny, something we can joke about with our friends, our natural defenses are disarmed, making us more likely to purchase the product or the service. 
And again, nothing wrong or sinful with a company trying to earn a living and provide work for its employees and to sell a product. Nothing wrong with that, so long as they, they do it with integrity. I'm just trying to point out to you some things I've learned in my marketing background that, that companies will try to do, and if you can be aware of it, it will prevent you from being a zombie who just watches TV and doesn't think with discernment while you see ads bouncing off your eyeballs or as you scroll on your phone and pop-up ads are coming up on your social media feed. So all of these tricks are designed to make us discontent because contentment is the enemy of consumerism, basically. They want to make us discontent. And that gets us to spend money. Oftentimes, more money on ourselves, leaving less money to give to the Lord. That's why the key, to genero- the key of generosity unlocks the handcuffs of greed. Look back at your Bibles with me as I read verses 14 to 16. In this next section, Paul continues to provide some financial counsel. So he says in verse 14, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Here's the second truth that Paul wants to tell us, and that is the privilege in generous giving is gospel partnership. The privilege in generous giving is gospel partnership. Now, I chose privilege for this point because the dictionary defines it as a rare opportunity offered to a special group of people that brings particular pleasure. So so a privilege is not given to everybody, and it's not something that has a negative impact. Instead, there's a reward in in taking advantage of the privilege. And in this case, generously supporting gospel ministry is a privilege because it primarily is offered to believers, that's a select group, and it grants them the pleasure of being used by God to change lives for Jesus. It means that even though you may not be called to full-time vocational ministry or you may not have... Uh, uh, spiritual gifts of leadership in ministry, you can still be used by the Lord to touch eternity. That's what Paul's telling the Philippians here. You became my partners when you gave financial resources to me. It was as though you were going with me to plant these churches, preach the gospel, and lead others to faith in Christ. So he says in verse 15, no church except you only. Now when Paul Paul left his readers to take the gospel to Corinth and Thessalonica, only the Philippians supported him. This is good for the Philippians in that they got to help change lives, but it's bad for the other churches in that they missed out on an opportunity. The Philippians got to change lives beyond the walls of their community. And Paul says, man, look at what God did through you. You giving to me, help me go do this. Could have done it without you. That's the word partnership. 
He continues to encourage the Philippians' generosity in verse 15 by using a handful of financial terms to illustrate their impact. The first term is this term partnership. It's in the ESV. Uh, The word in the original text is koioneo, which means to share, to partner, or to fellowship. Some translations render this shared, like the NIV does, and some other translations don't even render the word. I found that surprising yesterday when I was comparing popular Bible translations. But in the business world, to be a partner simply means to share the risk and the profits of a venture with someone else. And in the same manner, the Philippians were partners with Paul, taking part in the trials and triumphs of his church planting ministry. Now, since churches don't run on air, and the Philippians, I don't think, would have given to Paul at the detriment of their own church, I I think we can safely assume they followed this preferred model of generous giving. The Bible talks about two different ways to worship the Lord through giving. I've touched on this before in other messages, and it's, it was touched on in our membership class, but um, I'll just hit it real quickly here. Uh, the first is, letter A, ties to support the local church. God's word calls us to give ties to support the local church. A tithe is an expected, defined gift of 10% of our gross income, the phrase that's used throughout the scriptures is first fruits, meaning off the top, not the leftovers, not the worst, not the, not the parts that we don't want, so we'll give that to God. First fruits was to be given to the Lord at our place of worship. And so in the Old Testament, it was the temple uh, where the Jews worship. In the New Testament, it was also the temple where believers would come and gather, or sometimes in house churches. Uh, Ties are referenced in both the Old and the New Testament as a starting point. 10% is a baseline for giving back to the Lord. And I've said this before, I think the Lord defined it because if he did not, we would set it lower. We, We would come up with something lower. Sort of like in the restaurant industry, it's, it's sort of understood and good, it's good etiquette to give a 15% tip. Well, who decided that? Well, somebody in the restaurant industry that pays waiters and waitresses. Probably the waiters and waitresses. Because if that wasn't set, we'd go, well, you know, I think 1%, that's good. $100 meal, he gets 50 cents. I mean, we would, we would be cheap. And so... It's meant to remind us, though, the tithe, and I'm just speaking in general sense uh, here, summarizing quickly. The tithe, according to the scriptures, is meant to remind us that God owns everything. Psalm 24, verse 1 is where that's talked about. It reminds us where our income comes from. Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Lord explains how we will be prone to forget where we get our strength and where we get our profits from. And the tithe was intended to support the ministry of the local church. Nehemiah chapter 10 talks about that. Next, the other type of financial gift mentioned in the scriptures is an offering. So there are tithes and then there are offerings. Letter B, offerings 
are to meet additional needs. Offerings are mentioned in both the Old and the New Testament. Sometimes they were extra currency, extra crops, jewelry, linens, wood. Uh, They're talked about in the book of Numbers, the book of Exodus. But unlike the tithe, the amount of the offering is flexible and discretionary as the Lord leads the giver. In the scriptural examples that we have, offerings were given out of the surplus or extra resources that God's people had. And they were given to special needs. So, for example, uh, in today's today's world, uh, a surplus example might be a bonus or a wage increase or some unexpected windfall, inheritance, and and, uh, retirement, stocks, things like that that... Um, you didn't expect, or maybe it's extra that you have set aside. They are intended then to be given to special needs the Lord brings across your path, like a friend who has uh, medical bills that just swamp them and insurance isn't going to pay for everything, or uh, a loved one who has a major car repair that they just, you know, the emergency fund and their savings accounts tapped out a building campaign, a missionary, a radio ministry, a parachurch ministry, things that are above and beyond the tithe is what the offering is for. So we have tithes and we have offerings. What the Philippians did for Paul was they sent him offerings, supporting him like a missionary. Now, how does this tie into the gospel? Paul mentions the gospel in verse 15. And here's, here's, here's where we, we drive it home. Your giving to the Lord will always reflect what you really believe about the gospel. And this is because generous believers always remember they were greedy unbelievers until Jesus Christ saved them from their sin. And for this reason, they want as many people as possible to receive the grace and mercy they did through faith in Jesus Christ. And what I have noticed is that people who don't, believers who don't give generously as they should, typically don't fully grasp the gospel. They maybe think they weren't that bad of a person or they don't understand what God saved them from, or how extravagant and generous his mercy and grace was. So the key of generosity unlocks the handcuffs of greed. Let's look at the final verses here, 17 through 20. Not that, remember that came up in verse 11, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's the third financial truth about generosity that Paul wants to tell us, and that is, The prophets in generous giving are kingdom blessings. The prophets in generous giving are kingdom blessings. 
There, there's that, those two words again, the strong negative. Not that. Remember, Paul used the same negative back in verse 11. as to say, I, I don't want you to interpret my thank you as me asking for more. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that. Instead, he continues to use the language of an investment manager or a financial advisor who wants to maximize their return on their investment. He does this by referencing two funds the Lord establishes for every Christ follower in heaven. And here's letter A and B. The Lord provides generous believers with A, a retirement fund, a kingdom retirement fund. In verse 17, he says, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Some translations render this the profit that accrues to your account. Or that more be credited to your account, as it says in the NIV. In other words, just like a 401k that allows employees to direct funds from their paycheck into tax-sheltered investments, the Lord establishes a heavenly 401k for every Christ follower that will grow with interest until you retire. This investment vehicle is better than anything you can find here on earth. It's got the best of the best 10-star rating. Which is why Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20. In other words, what Jesus was saying is the same thing that Paul is saying here is that your kingdom retirement fund is protected from market volatility, crooked investors, and recessions. That's good news, isn't it? The next account that the Lord provides for believers is letter B, a kingdom emergency fund. He says, my God will supply every need of yours. Now, this is an interesting turn. Because of their responsiveness in meeting Paul's need, he says the Philippians can bank on the Lord being responsive the next time they have a need. This emergency fund is backed not by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, but rather, and it's there in the text at the end of verse 19, this emergency fund is backed by the riches and glory with Christ Jesus. So, so just so you don't misunderstand me, I want to be clear here. For example, if you are generous with what the Lord has given you, in a season of abundance. He will make sure you are taken care of should times get tight. Like you lose your job. And you go like from Paul, what Paul said, you know, he had seasons of abundance and plenty, and he had seasons of want. Say you're doing great, and all of a sudden, the company starts doing layoffs. And you go from having abundance to you don't know how you're going to put food on the table for your family. 
Or, or maybe, maybe it's a, a, a medical emergency that happens and it just taps out your insurance, your HRA, and your savings account, and all of a sudden, you're in huge debt. The Lord sees that, and basically what he says here in this passage, and then Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 8 to the Corinthians, is that if you're generous in your season of plenty... The Lord will remember that when you have a season of want or need and somebody else who enters in to a season of abundance and plenty can then bless you. Now, I use the word prophet in the final point of my outline reluctantly because Paul is using banking terms to explain the benefits of giving to the Lord. However, I was reluctant, though, because I, I was... I don't want to encourage selfish giving. And I don't want to sound like a prosperity preacher either. But it's very clear in God's word that he does incentivize generosity. At the same time, I need to make extra clear, though, Christ followers shouldn't give in order to receive. Instead, we should give because we have already received more than we deserve through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so, so the rewards of having a kingdom retirement account or an emergency fund that the Lord can help us out when we get in a bind, those are just sort of just cherries on top of the Sunday, as they say, icing on the cake. shows that the Lord values generosity because he incentivizes it, but at the same time, we have to make sure we would be willing to give even if he didn't reward our giving. So, how do we apply these three truths that we looked at in verses 10 through 20? Here's the first application that came to mind. The Lord may give you another one, but... Here's two I'm going to give you to stimulate your thinking. Uh, First of all, live beneath your means by learning contentment. And I have to say it because it's anti-American. Proverbs 21.20 says, The wise man saves by not spending all that he's earned. And this can only happen by being content with less. Now, the question that every discontent believer needs to answer is this. Will I really be content if I just have a little bit more? And the question every content believer, and I know there's some in here, some of you are content, you're doing well, the Lord's blessed you, But you need to answer this question. Will I still be content if I have just a little bit less? If the Lord takes away a little of what he's given me, will I still be content? Is he still good? 
One of the biggest stewardship mistakes some Christians make is letting their preferred lifestyle determine what they will give to the Lord instead of allowing what they give to the Lord to determine their lifestyle. In other words, they spend what they want to spend first, locking it up in car loan, and a house loan, and a boat loan, and a camper loan, and a second house on the coast, and so on and so forth, and got to have this, got to have this, got to have this. And then they get down to the bottom of their budget, there's just a few crumbs left over, and they go, oh, well, this is all that I have left for the Lord. I, I wish I could give to the Lord, but I can't afford it. It's, it's, it's... <laughs> This type of money management allows them to think to themselves, I'm not greedy, I just can't afford to give like others can. No, 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 what you did was you put the Lord at the bottom of your budget, he was in last place, and you put all the things you wanted at the top. And basically you, you divvied up the pie, and, and you, you spent all of it first on what you wanted, and then when there was like just some crumbs left, you went, okay, well, this is what the Lord gets. You see, but... First fruits means first place in our budgets. The Lord wants to be first. This means that tithes and offerings should be built into our budget first. Then we decide how big a house, how many cars, how new the cars are, how many campers and boats, and second houses we can get after the Lord gets his portion. That's what's supposed to happen. So, if your lifestyle is preventing you from giving to the Lord, I want to encourage you to step out in faith by asking him what changes you need to make because the Lord would say, then sell one of your houses. Or maybe you need to have one new car and one used car as opposed to two new cars. Living beneath your means frees up resources for giving tithes to the Lord as part of your worship and offerings to kingdom needs. So the Lord could use you to bless others. But if you lock up all those resources on things you want first, you miss out on opportunities to be partners with the Lord, like the Philippians were with Paul. Here's the second application. Give beyond your tithe to kingdom needs. Proverbs 11.25 says, One who brings blessings will be enriched, and the one who waters himself will be watered. The Lord wants to use you as a conduit through which he can bless others. Second, only to leading someone to faith in Christ, being used by the Lord to answer someone's prayers for a huge financial need or maybe a small financial need. It's one of the greatest joys you'll experience here on earth. And by the way, your availability to be used by God in this way will turn, in turn give the recipient a chance to praise the Lord publicly and it will give them a God story they can share with people in their sphere of influence. Maya and I have seen the Lord provide many times in, for emergency needs through someone's anonymous gift and that allowed us to tell unbelieving family members who think we're nuts for being in the ministry we get a chance to tell them a God story, and it leaves our unbelieving family members speechless. They did what? How much was the check? Oh, my goodness. 
Wow, that's just amazing. Yeah. The Lord, the Lord, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He knew. So an offering above and beyond your tithe says to the Lord, I've already given what you expected, but now I want to give a little something extra because I'm grateful for all that you've done for me. That's what an offering says. Well, on the wall of his White House office, President Lyndon Johnston, back in the 1960s, he had a framed letter that hung there. It was written more than a century earlier by General Sam Houston. Houston wrote it to Lyndon Johnson's great-great-grandfather. The letter was valuable not only for Houston's autograph alone, but the story behind it is much more significant. Mr. Baines was the great-grandfather, I'm sorry I misspoke earlier, just a great-grandfather to Lyndon Johnson, and Mr. Baines, who was the recipient of the letter from Sam Houston, led Houston to faith in Christ in the mid-1800s. After this life-changing event, the general was a new man. He was no longer this coarse, belligerent, alcoholic womanizer that he was known for being, but instead he became peaceful and content. And when the day came for Sam Houston to be baptized, it was an unforgettable event for those who had seen him in his wilder days. After his baptism, Sam announced that he would like to pay for half of the local minister's annual salary. And when some of the witnesses asked, why on earth would you want to do that, which I, I Things were different back then, I think, as far as compensation for ministers. But when asked, why would you want to do such a thing? His simple response was, my pocketbook was baptized too. <laughs> Sam Houston understood that through faith in Jesus Christ, he had received God's generous grace and mercy. And that reality turned him into a generous giver. And so I just, I have to ask, has your wallet or purse been baptized too? And that's an important how you answer, it's important how you answer that question because the key of generosity unlocks the handcuffs of greed. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, would you help us in the culture that we live in, being bombarded by constant messages to create discontent, would you, Lord, help us to learn the art of contentment that Reverend Burroughs talked about? Lord, would you please, by, with, the, with, the, with the scalpel of your Holy Spirit, would you just do surgery on our hearts and would you peel away the layers, and help us understand deep in our hearts what it is that makes us discontent. We want to be content in you. Please, Lord, would you help us to see there is a better life than just 
spending more money and more money and accumulating more and more stuff. Father, I want to just also lift up those who have not yet given to you. Maybe they, they have established their lifestyle first, and maybe they have ignored the teaching from the scriptures on biblical stewardship, or maybe they, they heard it after they established their lifestyle, so they didn't know what, what, what they were supposed to do as a Christ follower with the money you've entrusted to them. Lord, please, would you just help those folks to discern what steps they need to take to bring their finances under your lordship. Show them, Lord, what wise decisions they need to make or changes they need to make in their lifestyles so they can be a good steward of what you've entrusted to them. Father, I also realize that in, in, a, in, a, in a church our size, though we're not a large church, there are some who are struggling financially, and it's not because they did anything foolish or careless or sinful. It's just that your sovereign hand has allowed or caused a difficult season to come. Father, please, would you provide for them? Would you show them if there's anything they can do differently in their, in their financial decisions? And Lord, please, would you... Help them to get in better financial standing, good financial standing. So they can give to kingdom needs. And finally, Lord, I just want to thank you for those who already do give generously. And I ask you, Lord, please, would you, would you bless them? Would you show them that you see what they're giving? And that you honor that. We know you don't have to, but Lord, we just want to ask because Paul says you will, and sometimes we need the encouragement. So Lord, thank you for those who are already doing this. Finally, Lord, thank you most of all for being the best generous giver of all time by giving your one and only son, not one of your sons, but the only one a perfect offering without spot or blemish to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you, Lord, for offering him up for us while we were still yet sinners because you loved us and you wanted a relationship with us. We praise you for that example that you've set. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.